I'm Jason Klom, and this is Comedy on Vinyl. The year is 1957. The album A Child's Garden of Freeburg. The artist Stan Freeburg, and my guest this week is Steve Whitmire. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, I'm very happy to be here, Jason. Glad we could do this. Uh, me too. Holy cow. Are you kidding? I mean, <laughs> you know what's so funny is uh, I, uh, as, a, as a young man, I've talked about this before, as a young man, thought I was going to be an animator, also thought I was going to be a puppeteer at various times. Oh. And so there are some voices uh, and performances that are stuck in one's brain. Would it be weird, though, if the first one that on to- off the top of my head is Gil, that Gil is from Muppets Take Manhattan is so important to me? <laughs> That's so funny because uh, it's important to me too because, you know, as you know, I later went on to, to be Kermit after a mm-hmm. while. And the whole point of that character was, uh, all those characters, it was these frogs that were surrounding Kermit. Mm-hmm. And Kermit had amnesia. It's a whole long story if you haven't seen the film. But um, we were basically just making fun of Jim. Uh, <laughs> you know, Jim was standing there with us and we were purposely trying to do our Kermit voices, our versions of Kermit. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, my, I guess my Gill voice sounds a lot like what my Kermit voice ended up sounding like. So, I, so in a way, I got to kind of practice my Kermit voice standing there next to Jim on the set. You know? <laughs> I always had wondered because I'm like, okay, I mean, these seem like the kind of group who would take the piss out of each other a bit, oh, like, yeah. you oh, know. Yeah. And having talked to other Muppeteers, it's it's <laughs> obviously part of the the thing. I love that so much. Yeah, I, th- that is a weirdly like I'm in this group of actors, and for some reason, that is a scene that comes up a lot when we quote stuff to each other. I don't know why. How? funny yeah funny. yeah, yeah. It, it is i think it's it's the it's the muppet movie that gets talked about least for some reason but i think it's it's my favorite yeah. probably well people remember favorite. the first one i think because rainbow connection was such a big deal sure, sure. uh beautiful sure. song obviously paul williams and um and and the music you know i don't know whether people remember the music from muppets take manhattan or not that was probably the most sophisticated of those three initial muppet movies that we did mm-hmm. uh, and frank oz of course directed it mm-hmm and Jim, you know, Jim was kind of just a performer on that. Obviously, he owned the Muppets and he was a producer. But right. in terms of his day-to-day activity during that shooting, you know, I would, I remember specifically a couple of us asking him questions about what we were shooting, what we were doing. And he just said, I don't know. I'm just a puppeteer on this. <laughs> you know, he, and he was serious. He wasn't yeah. involved in it. You know? <laughs> I love it. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, the purity of that is, is, is always nice to hear. Do you, uh, this is, I'm sorry, we're, I'm going to be all over the place because I'm going to have a million worry, questions for you. Not to worry, not to worry. Are you, because right now I can't remember, are you in any scenes with Art Carney? Did you get to act with Art Carney? I did not I did not act with him. I, I got to meet him there briefly, you know, just mm-hmm. a hello, how are you, nice to meet you kind of thing. Yeah. But no, I was not in those scenes, uh, but, uh, but it was so. great just to, you know, it's that feeling when somebody like Art Carney walks on the set. Mm-hmm. You know, he, has, he brings so much history with him. You just sort of feel this glow around him or something i don't know right there, there are a few actors like that that we've worked with that you just they, they bring such a such a past with them that you it's hard to let go of that you know? yeah, of course of course i mean <laughs> uh okay so let's let's very quickly we'll talk about the wreck well don't have to be quickly we can talk about it for the rest of the the episode but okay sure um sure. <laughs> other the other person to pick i didn't realize until today the other person who has picked this album before um is grant bachoco so another oh. puppeteer so oh, this has happened before. I, I don't know why this is uh, this is a thing that puppet that uh, puppeteers are attracted to. But why uh, this particular album? Where did you first hear uh, Stan Freeberg? Well, let me let me answer the first part of that first because it, it clicked for me when you said that. I think a, a very possible reason that puppeteers would choose this 
you know, puppeteers are oftentimes, I mean, okay, I make distinctions in different kinds of puppeteering. Sure. There's the Avenue Q puppeteering, which is its own thing, but mm -hmm. that's basically an actor who has a puppet. Yeah. And most of them were qualified puppeteers, but they're also a part of the act. Mm -hmm. So so to me, that's a little bit different form of puppeteering than what we've always done, where Makes we're sense. not visible ever at all. Um, and I think puppeteers tend to possibly be more outgoing through their characters than they are themselves, mm -hmm. certainly in a public way. And I know that when I started with the Muppets, I had a, a very limited range of voices and characters. I, I was not really an actor. I was a puppeteer and I, I could do the manipulation quite well. And but but in terms of an acting background, I had none. I was only 19. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of puppeteers have less of, a, of an acting background and more of a, a kind of a nerd background when it comes to the actual puppetry and building them and all that stuff. So if, if you're shy about doing voices, you often look to people who are so amazing with uh, the opposite of that, which is what Stan Freeberg was doing. I mean, he did do appearances, of course. Sure. I only knew him as a recording artist because um, I was, you know, he I was quite young and he was getting on up there, and his heyday was sort of, you know, slightly fading by the time I got to know who he was. So I was very interested in his work uh, because he did these amazing um, stories with his music that mm -hmm. had a comic element. And you could just visualize what they were. And for a puppeteer, that's a dream come true. Sure. Um, went back when you could steal other people's stuff and uh, use it yourself, you know. <laughs> uh, you wouldn't do that now, probably. But, <laughs> but the funny part of Freeberg was uh, I chose that album, too, because Jim and I sort of charted these parallel courses that I wasn't aware of. I mean, I was 22 years younger than Jim Henson. Mm -hmm. But evidently, when he was a college student and started The Muppets, he, um, he also used Stan Freeberg's tracks. Uh, on television. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He would he would build these characters and he would act out Stan Freeberg's material um, at a point when Jim was just getting started. Mm -hmm. And I never knew that until I met Jim many, many years later. But I came to know Stan Freeberg's work through my parents mm -hmm. um, who grew up in the 50s. And I was I was born in the late 50s. And my mom had these old Stan Freeberg albums. The one, the one I remember to begin with was the Yellow Rose of Texas that he mm -hmm. did, yeah, um, which you know it was two characters and, and a banjo player. So technically, there were three characters, although banjo player didn't speak. Right. And you could just picture what this was. And I actually won a high school talent show with that piece of music using Stan Freeberg's track and built the puppets for it. So good. Um, yeah, which kind of set me down the road of this is kind of you know I mean I was already heavily into puppets. Yeah. But Stan stuff was so visual without you seeing it. Yeah, and yeah. To, and to set it to to you know to create your own visuals around it was amazing. Um, what's so the, what's all, all of his stuff? You know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I apologize. No, no, not I, at all. Not at all. What do you think draws people to doing this? Because I've I've even read that Paul McCartney did that to the Great Pretender. He he oh. learned to like act, you know he would he did he had a whole act out he did. I've heard of other people acting out to Freeberg tracks. What the yeah. hell is with that? What am I? I I, I really think it's what we were kind of just saying. It, it's mm -hmm. so it lends itself so strongly to your imagination. Mm -hmm. uh, what Stan was doing, the, uh, he, he, he had an interesting way of knowing just enough detail to put into what he was conveying vocally. And often to, a lot of his stuff would be more than one character. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he would play one character and he had other people doing the other characters, I think. And I think sometimes it might have, both characters might have been him. Right. I'm not sure about that, frankly. But um, 
you, it, you know, it, it was, it was sort of the weird Al Yankovic of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, take it only rather than doing parodies of the music, he was actually doing the music. He was more parodying the artists. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just, just incredible stuff, you know, and, and oh, funny yeah. today, you know, nobody's mm-hmm. quite doing that. I think my favorite, well, here's the thing. John and Marsh is obviously a yes. classic. I don't oh, know yeah. if it, if people today would understand why it's funny, but if you understand these old tropes of, of what soap operas used to be, the <laughs> yes. idea of an entire track of, and which I think, by the way, this record came out, like I said, 57. I think yeah. that track by then was already six years old, but it was still his most popular track. Like right. it was su- it was such a huge thing. Um, <laughs> But that's my boy. I had forgotten how damn funny this one is. All about, and that is the most Weird Al Yankovic. That clearly influenced so much of who Weird Al ended up being. Oh yeah, undoubtedly. Well, and the other part of that is too. One of my favorites on there, uh, though I never did it with puppets, was uh, Rock Island Line. I think it's on that mm-hmm. album. Mm-hmm. And you'll hear a character that he does. Not the record producer. I, I wish I could tell you who it is who'd play the record producer. It's probably somebody very famous whose voice I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, but but Freeberg is the artist, mm-hmm. and it's a character that he called, I think it was called Mumbles. Uh huh. And Mumbles is a taste of a voice that Jim, admittedly, sort of took and turned into Kermit. Um, if That's you listen to that character, it, it, it's uh, I'm not going to do Kermit's voice for you, but but mm. but I'll do a version of what Freeberg's Freeberg's was. Kind of this character who talked like this, you know, and he was yeah, kind yeah, of, yeah. you could see how that would form itself into being what Kermit became. Mm-hmm. Um, Jerry Nelson, who was one of the main Muppet performers, uh, passed away a couple years ago. But Jerry, we called him the Mel Blanc of the Muppet world. He, yeah. he had so many characters and so many voices that he just tiny changes on his own voice. Mm-hmm. And it, Jerry tells the story of when he started with Jim way back in the 60s. Um, he walked into the room. And he was showing, doing some voices for Jim, and he did that Stan Freeberg voice, which was very popular at the time because of Stan. Sure. And ev- evidently, Jim turned to him and said, Jerry, uh, you, you can't do that voice. And he said, why not? I love doing that voice. He said, because I do that voice. <laughs> and and it, it became essentially Kermit. Jim changed it a little, but it kind of became sure. what Kermit was, you know? That's so funny. So, it- so Stan was a huge influence on Jim Henson. It also is clearly the influence for Mr. Jinx, if I'm not mistaken. Like, oh, I'm sure. You know, that sort of thing in the back of the throat. Yeah, That's yeah. fascinating. Oh, my God. I love it. Yeah. It's, it's but, tightening up your throat and that pure, mm. pure sound of this character who sort of mm. talks like, I love that character. Uh, you know. <laughs> so good. It's <laughs> well, so good. one of the funniest tracks on the album is, to me, is Rock Island Line. Mm-hmm. Because the guy's trying to just... He's try his pronunciations. The guy, the other guy, makes fun of his pronunciation. It's it's terrific. It's just mm-hmm. great interplay between characters and right. very Muppet like. <laughs> For sure. What's uh? When did you first build any kind of puppet, and what made you think that was a good idea? Well, the only type of puppetry that I was ever really interested in was the Muppet style puppet. That that Jim's style of puppetry, which is that the mouth that moves mm-hmm. and, and the hands that are run by the rods or the live hands. Um, and, and the look of the Muppets is what drew me to being interested in building puppets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my earliest memories of Jim's work would probably be Rolf on the Jimmy Dean show. I was, okay. a, that was the early sixties and I was very young, mm-hmm. but my, you know, it was black and white television and I would beg my parents to let me stay up late enough to watch Rolf on the Jimmy Dean show. And they would, it was like staying up late. You know, eight o'clock or something, probably. Sure, sure. And um, 
Rolf was this big, was, nobody had seen anything like Rolf before. I mean, there were other puppets on television, including Stan Freebird, by the way. He was also a puppeteer. We can talk about that. Oh, yeah. But um, Rolf was this big, engaging character who, when he looked at the camera, he looked at you. When he looked at Jimmy Dean, he yeah. looked at you. Yeah. Their conversations were, I'm sure they were written to a large degree, but they seemed spontaneous. They had a point. He was a living thing. I mean, quote, living thing. And he was not, he was actually real. I mean, you knew if you were in the room with Rolf, you could put your hands on him. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I remember he had this big black mouth when he opened on black and white TV, it looked uh -huh. like a big giant hole. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I, you know, as a six-year-old, I think I probably knew it was a puppet. I knew it wasn't a real dog. And, but, but I remember thinking that must be how they get inside the puppet. They're just going through the mouth. You know, because it looked like a big hole. <laughs> you know, and so I, you know, I was influenced by Jim's work from a very young age. Mm -hmm. And by the time Sesame Street came along, Jim had also done three or four television specials in the early seventies, mm -hmm. uh, which I was just. And at that point, by the way, with there being no internet, you know, the only way to know about these things was in the back of TV Guide magazine, which was actually a real magazine. Mm -hmm. You you opened it up, and there was this little page that said uh, it was like a yellow thing that were headlines from New York about future stuff. And they'd have a little blurb saying, Jim Henson has done a new TV special and it'll be on this date. And I would tear that out and paste it on my, you know, stick it on my wall and go tell my friends at school. It, I was such a nerdy fan before the internet, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, you had to be, you could only catch it once probably, unless they decided to repeat yeah. it. Yeah, no, well, you had your one chance to see it. Yeah. Uh, and you couldn't record it. You know, there was no video to record, mm -hmm. no way to record. So my first puppet build was when Sesame Street happened, I was so drawn to already Jim's work, mm -hmm. but then suddenly the Muppets were on every single day. Yeah. And in Atlanta, where I was from, um, there was uh, two PBS stations. So there's only f like five channels at that point, you know, mm -hmm. not like today, ABC, NBC, CBS, and a couple of PBS channels. Okay. And Ses Sesame Street would run in the morning on the local channel eight, Mm -hmm. And then it would run in the afternoon on Channel 30, which was like a UHF deal. And so it was the same show. Yeah. So I would watch the early morning show and I would take notes and I would say, okay, right after they talk about the letter L, they're going to do Manamana. Mm -hmm. I would have my little cassette player with the two buttons and my little microphone and I would record the soundtracks off of Sesame Street. So it would, they'd finish the letter L and I'd push, push record oh, and I'd God. record Manamana and I'd stop it. So then I'd go off and try to build the puppets and I would take that recording to school and do these puppet shows for my friends. Wow. Um, so I was in a funny sort of way when I look back on that as crude as it was at the time, I was already starting to learn something about production in a weird way, you know? Sure, yeah. As a 10 year old kid. I love and, that. Yeah. I, and then I wrote to Jim Henson about that time and he wrote back. Oh. Uh, to a 10 year old kid and, and turned me on to some patterns that he had published in, of all places, Woman's Day magazine. Really? These really simple little Muppet patterns. Love it. For like the anything Muppets on Sesame Street. Super mm -hmm. Which I, I think sort of turned out to be a, a, a little bit of a curse because those patterns became the patterns for a lot of people who started selling puppets over the next 10 years. Of course. Uh, you know, all the ones you bought in the store. Yeah under a different name. But that's uh, that's when I really started actually learning how to make puppets with real patterns. Wow. I mean, that pr I mean, I don't think I had realized that it was out there in such a, a public forum. All you had to do is buy this magazine and get the pattern. 
yeah. that I mean that yeah. it, it, it very much changed the definition of what a puppet looks like I'm sure in our minds mm. because before that what are we talking about usually a marionette or yeah. a simple sock puppet we're talking lamb yep. chop maybe yep. <laughs> lamb chop like that. right yeah. which was amazing for what it was of too. course I mean, yeah incredible Sherry Lewis was amazing She's brilliant yeah I'll tell you a story about her in a second but the other part was um you know, Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, and, mm -hmm. and, and the work, actually, we talk, we're talking about Stan Freeberg, to bring that back up for a second. You know, Stan, long before my time, did Beanie and Cecil. Yeah, um, right. I don't think it was called Beanie's. I think it was Cecil the C6E Monster or something like that. Mm -hmm. but, but you can find that stuff on YouTube, uh, his mm -hmm. black and white television series. And the puppets, the only one that had a, a working mouth was, was Cecil the Sea Serpent, mm -hmm. uh, which was semi-Muppety. And the puppeteering is great. I mean, it's fantastic for the time. But it's 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 a little bit more crude than than what Jim eventually developed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Jim's work evolved in terms of the style of manipulation and the puppets themselves vastly over the years that he was alive, and we continue that after his death. Um, but but all of that inspiration, you know, was was part of the package. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you had a Sherry Lewis story. Please tell me. Well, Sherry Lewis um, was shooting. I forgot the name of the show, but it was the whatever the last series she did for kids mm -hmm. uh, in the 90s. And we were doing a series called Dinosaurs. Um, mm -hmm. You know, guys, you know, amazing show. Of course. Well, in Los Angeles. And so I'm basically in Los Angeles. And I knew a puppeteer named Gord Robertson from Fraggle Rock, mm -hmm. uh, one of the, one of our Canadian friends who, who lives in Toronto and worked on Fraggle, um, was working with Sherry on her show. And he invited me one day to come by and watch the show. They shot in this little little studio, and so I went. I was able to meet her, and she was she was she was really something. And and I remember saying, "So so you're the new Kermit," you know. It was kind of like you know she had this you know kind of fun. I mean, it was sweet, but a fun attitude. Mm -hmm. He said, "Yeah, Jim and I were always kind of different. He was more of a people person, <laughs> you know. He liked working with other people. I didn't like that so much. And what she meant by that was because she was part of the act. Mm -hmm. She." She even when she was shooting video, she would put on, you know, two characters like Hush Puppy and Lamb Chop, uh -huh. and she would work with her arms out, up above her head, and I I can't even remember whether she used a monitor or not. We did. We always looked at monitors. Yeah, yeah. And she would do a scene with those two characters talking to each other, doing both of them and both voices at the same time. We we would never do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's almost impossible. Um, so a totally different kind of puppetry that she adapted from her stage shows and her live shows to to uh television you know, and it worked completely you know <laughs> that's so crazy it, it's always it's always interesting the the entirely different approaches that two groups of people can take to roughly the same idea um yeah. that is yeah. a that's an intense skill like I, I there's not a lot of even comedians or other actors i can think of i know lord buckley had a big was a big like voice switcher there's yeah. some other folks that i can't think the names of but that is a wow yeah that's crazy <laughs> Well, even when skill. she was even when she was shooting, mm -hmm. I, my recollection of that one day when I watched her work was that she was still using her abilities as a ventriloquist. She wasn't moving her mouth, and and, and I think that all I can think is what's well, what she was used to for one thing. But I think it probably kept the voices pure. They they mm -hmm. it would sound different if she just opened her mouth and talked in their voices. For sure. So so even when she was out of the shot. She was still not moving her lips. You know, mm, it was really that's remarkable. So great. I was wondering. That was actually going to be my next question. That is, that is, that's intense. That's oh great. yeah, uh, amazing. I mean, very impressive. Uh, so that was my only experience meeting her. But but how great it was to have had the chance to meet her for a moment. You know? Yeah. Did you ever, <laughs> throughout your career, get to meet Stan Freeberg? 
I did. I have oh. uh, some interesting Freebird stories because not unlike Jim Henson, uh, Freebird was kind of a hero of mine. Mm -hmm. I mean, my first hero was Charles Schultz. Charles mm -hmm. M. Schultz with Peanuts. Sure. When I was about nine or 10, and my friend and I would draw the Peanuts characters and do our own comic books. And I think somewhere about that age, it clicked for me that, I mean, I, I, I never really thought that I would work with Jim Henson, but I, I did have this fleeting thought that, you know, Charles Schultz does this work all by himself. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I think basically he drew his stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you, you can't really work with him. You know, he, he's a one-man operation. Sure. And for some reason, I, that sort of steered me toward the Muppets because there's a lot of similarities between those, the Peanuts characters and the original kind of Muppet show Muppets. Mm -hmm. their, their relationships is what it's all about. Yeah. And I thought, well, but Jim, you know, he's got a whole troop of people that he works with. Maybe there's the thing there, you know. Sure. Uh, and so with with... Freeberg, he was also a hero of mine just because, again, this inspirational thing that he was doing. So, uh, once again, during those dinosaurs years, we were in Los Angeles um, in the first part of the 90s. I wrote Stan Freeberg, basically a fan letter. Mm -hmm. And by then I was doing Kermit and we had done Muppet Christmas Carol. So I was, you know, kind of established with Kermit. Sure. And I wrote him a you know a page and a half letter saying, Mr. Freeberg, you know I'm a huge fan kind of thing, um, you know I'm I'm now Kermit, and he never wrote back, and I was incredibly disappointed because I wanted to meet him, but I didn't press to meet him. I just said, if you ever want to come over to the studio, we're just on the other side of town. I understand you live in Beverly Hills. Why don't you come mm -hmm. over? And I thought, okay, well, you know, you don't always get responses from people, but sure. what the heck? What the heck? I wrote my letter. I got it off my chest. So then uh, Kevin Clash, who the original Elmo, mm -hmm. myself, and a very good friend of mine named Karen Barnes, who was the head of uh, Fox Children's Network at the time, former mm. Muppet executive producer, okay, went to, went to lunch one day. And we were over at, I think it was the Century City Mall. We were walking around just having a day. Mm -hmm. And um, we had been talking about Stan Freeberg that day. And I was telling Karen that Kevin knew I had wrote this thing. And f all of a sudden... Kevin said, there he is, there he is, there he is. And, he, and, and we look and Stan Freeberg walks by and Karen, and he keeps going, he's with his wife. <laughs> and um, I, get, you know, I get a little bit of shakes, you know, of I was like, course. oh my God, what do I do? Do I bother him or do I leave him alone? You know, I don't want to drive the guy crazy. And Karen turns to me being with Fox Children's Network. She says, oh, Stan Freeberg, do you, I know him, do you want to meet him? <laughs> we didn't know this. We hadn't gotten to that point in the conversation yet. <laughs> and I said, do I? And she said, oh, well, he's pitched a couple ideas to us at Fox, you know, so I get an introduction right there in a shopping mall. And the funny part was Stan's wife, um, she sort of just like the minute she sees he's about to get confronted in public just separates. Mm -hmm, <laughs> you know? mm -hmm, she, mm -hmm. she doesn't want to deal with, with being confronted in a shopping This is her day off for crying out loud. Of course. So she goes over and she's standing way over there uh, smoking a cigarette and Stan will talk to you all day long. I mean, he was just this guy who the minute he would just stand there, he would go on forever. And she's probably thinking, could we, you know, there's a sale at Macy's. Could we please get him? I don't know what she was thinking. But we were introduced and he talked for quite a while. And I said, I, I'm sorry to bother you. You know, I wrote you this letter. And he said, oh, I have that letter on my desk. I'm sorry. I just got, hadn't got around to writing back. So he, he, you know, so we had this conversation. And that was kind of the end of that. I mean, we, uh -huh. but we met, we met. So that sure. was the, the first meeting. And I told him what an influence he'd been on me. And I got to say that to him. Um, 
about three or four months later, maybe longer, I'm flying between Atlanta and Los Angeles for a project. Mm-hmm. And I get on the plane, my wife and I are flying, and Stan gets on the plane and he walks past me and he's sitting a couple of rows by, behind me. So, I mean, I had to say hello. Of course. So once the flight gets off the ground, I go back and I say, sorry to bother you, but you, you may not remember this, but we met at the mall. <laughs> I'm the guy who wrote the letter. And he said, oh, I, of course I remember. I'm so glad you said hello. Okay, so we part company. Mm-hmm. Then about 10 minutes later, he comes up the aisle and he does about 30 minutes for me of Stan Freeberg virtually performing for me on an airplane. <laughs> we're flying along and we're just laughing and the people around us, I, I, don't know, I don't know whether they knew who he was. They probably <laughs> did, but you've got this zany fellow with curly gray hair just mm-hmm. giving me a whole performance. <laughs> and part of that was because he evidently was writing a second or third book Mm-hmm. And he was hoping I might be able to help him facilitate getting a photograph of himself with Jim Henson and Jane Henson uh-huh. at a point where he visited Jim during the shooting of Salmon Friends, Jim's first oh, wow. ever okay. show. Yeah. And I tried. I was not able to facilitate oh. that. But that's but that photo I talked with Jane Henson, she did had no you know, no no recollection of Dang it. it. She remembered him being there, not of the photo. Mm-hmm. So that was my Stan Freeberg experience in life. I mean, we had this couple of really great moments, you know, and I got to express to him what a great influence he'd been on me. That's so wonderful. You know, I I had never, because the thing, I'll be honest, he always, I always assumed he would be a big old grouch. And I love that he was just like, oh no, I'm going to perform for this guy. This this guy's, and also that his wife knows better. She's like, I'm not going to hang around the nerds. I'm just going to veer off, let the nerds talk to Stan. It's well, so and funny. Stan did the thing Delightful. that a husband would do that would drive a wife crazy. We're standing at the shopping mall, and after we talked for a minute, he said uh, something in the conversation came about his wife. Said, she, and he just basically says, "She's standing over there." We all turn and look, and she just goes, "You know, <laughs> like <laughs> cigarette in hand, hand up, like yeah, hello, you know." Um, I mean, I'm sure she was done with being confronted in public. But, of course, uh, you know. <laughs> But he was terrific. And That's he confirmed, remarkable. there's a story he tells online someplace where he confirmed on the airplane, he said, you know, I'm the person who taught Jim how to make Kermit smile. I love it. I love um, it. And he had this thing he did with his hand where he was able to make Kermit push up on the sides of the mouth. Now, frankly, Jim, I never saw Jim use that move with Kermit. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but still, it was, but it was something Jim had never done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Dan showed him this silly smile, you know. I love it. <laughs> uh, you know, so they had this little thing, and then I was able to share in it, which was really just That's a wonderful great. thing. <laughs> That's nice. I love it. No, those are, those are nice moments, and it's nice It's nice when the generations get to kind of connect in that. Even though you obviously knew and worked with Jim, it's a, it's a nice, yeah. fun connection. It's interesting that you didn't make it until, like, later on. Um, right. Right. Can we? Uh, I I'm always curious about this. Uh, I I always like to talk about archivists and stuff. How much of your own stuff do you have? Do you still have Otis? Do you still have any of your old stuff? I have unfortunately very little. Okay. Uh, at the at the point in time when I was doing that early show, you know, I was mm-hmm. working, our our studio was an office building in downtown Atlanta, um, and this broadcast legend in Atlanta who's still around, a guy named Don Kennedy, mm-hmm. uh, who's I think Don's probably 90 at this point. Mm-hmm. Haven't had any contact in many years, but just someone I very much respect. He was a kid show host when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was six years old, I was on his local live afternoon kid show. So fast forward about, I don't know, 15 years. 
and mm -hmm. I'm a teenager, and he sees me performing with this character I had built called Otis, who's this beach bum hippie freak guy, uh, <laughs> and I'm an 18-year-old. And then eventually he hired me because he was reviving a, a local UHF. Now, for people who don't know UHF, that talk mm -hmm. about vinyl. Same time frame. It was this little round antenna, you know, that you put on top of your TV, mm -hmm. and you had to tune in these channels on your television, and sometimes you got them, sometimes you didn't. Yeah. Uh, static was part of the deal. Mm -hmm. um, and he started a local channel and he was looking for programming. So he put me on the air two and a half hours a day live, two which is a long wow. time Okay. With, a, with my puppet. Yeah. Uh, and my friend Gary Kepke and I, who was also a puppeteer and a ventriloquist, did these characters. Uh, and we ran these old serials like Flash Gordon, mm -hmm. like my serials that would run for 15 minutes. And then we would fill the rest of that time taking phone calls from the okay. locals who were watching. So children's, mm -hmm. a lot of adults, uh, with no delay, by the way. So, <laughs> you know, if somebody wanted to call up and throw a few four-letter words in, <laughs> they would get away with it. Um, but that was, that was that time, and that was Otis. So I don't have any of that because even though we recorded a little bit here and there, it was rare that we did. It was a live show. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't have any of it. Um, Dang it. It's it's a real shame, mm -hmm. uh, you know. I still have the puppet, but the puppet is kind of falling apart. He, he's turning to toast, as we say. In the sure, world. sure. <laughs> uh, but that was he was kind of he was just kind of who I was at the time. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. What did he sound like? If I can, I don't like to ask people to perform, but well, I loved... well, he sounded like this. He was just kind of this fellow who was, you know, he was just kind of a cool cat. You know, he did a show, and I'm putting more, but frankly, I'm putting more character into him now, trying to think back than I probably sure. did at the time. He was. <laughs> He was like a, this is pre-Muppet Show. Muppet Show happened during this time frame. Oh, yeah. Huh? But he right. was the center of the wheel, and all these other characters revolved around him very much like Kermit was. Sure. He was the host of the show, and my friend Gary did virtually every other character. Yeah. Uh, and we would just chatter, and Gary would go off and get another puppet, and the other puppet would come in. You know? I love it. And they were very Muppet-like puppets, very Muppet-style puppets, mm -hmm. moving mouths, eyes that could look at the camera, very focused and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. My God, I love it. So how long after doing all this stuff on your own did yeah. you then hop on The Muppet Show? Well, it was almost immediately in a way. Um, I did this show called The Kids Show with Otis in Atlanta, and that lasted for about six months. Okay. And it was, it was fortunate, even though because we had eight-foot ceilings in this place, we had to lie on our backs on the floor to do the puppets. Jeez. So imagine lying on your back with the, with the puppet in the air. We had a, one it. monitor. Work. No, and I, no, it's not, not easy. And I would, I would literally, we had a guy, sometimes we had a camera operator, sometimes we didn't. You know, it was a very mm -hmm. small channel. And the, the, the multi-line, you know, telephone was next to me. All the lights were flashing. I'd have the puppet on, reaching up, doing the puppet. And I'd take the next call and I'd say, oh, hey, how God. are you? You know, and we'd go on from there, you know. So I, and, and, if, and if there was one of those instances where somebody needed to cut off, I had to do that as well. <laughs> so hit the wrong button and you've cut off three callers. <laughs> but so that ran into the time where I met uh, Carol Spinney in Atlanta. Uh, oh, who was okay. Big, Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch. Yeah. Carol came to Atlanta for a, um, a puppetry festival, mm -hmm. a Southeastern regional thing. And I really didn't know these things existed. I had been a puppeteer at that point, probably, you know, on a, mostly on a, on a kind of a hobbyist level. Sure. Uh, for maybe eight or nine years. But, but I didn't know that, that, you know, there were these gatherings. 
So I was determined to go to this thing because I found out that Carol Spinney was going to be there. Um, not because I was looking for a job, it, I, because I was so young, it didn't cross my mind that a job would be out there. Of course. I just wanted, you know, I was such a Muppet fanatic. I wanted to meet someone who worked for the Muppets that I had watched for years and had been inspired by all these people. And meeting Carol around that time was eventually, without even me thinking it was going to happen, he's the person who recruited me into the Muppets. So it sort of overlapped a bit between mm -hmm. my work with Channel 36 and Atlanta and my Muppet time. And, and it was helpful because they were actually able to help me put together a little video demo tape when the time came that I needed to do that to send wow. for Jim to see. Yeah. Holy um, cow. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a, a, a really interesting time. You know, I was, I'm, I've been putting together a new website and part of that uh, was trying to put together a timeline yeah. of the things I'm going to keep adding to this for the rest of my life. Of course. But right now I'm up to, I haven't put the website online yet, but I'm up to the point where about 1983. So the 70s are covered. And mm -hmm. in 1977, there's just so much stuff that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, it just goes on forever. You know, the kids show with Otis and the, and I met Carol Spinney and, you know, I, um, you know, all this stuff happened all along that time. And then I met Jim and, you know, that was the year that it all came together. That's crazy. <laughs> that is not, just out of high school then, basically. Just barely, yeah. Good God. I, my, my, well, my very first professional puppet job, I mean, I've been doing, I've been getting paid little bits of money to do birthday parties and the things you do. Sure, sure. out for a long time, a couple of corporate things. And um, my first real job was with Sid and Marty Croft. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, there was this massive theme park that they built here, an indoor theme park. Uh, in the building that is now the space they were in has been converted to CNN. Oh, it's okay. This eight-level building at the CNN Center, which at the time was the Omni International with a hotel and all that stuff. Oh, wow. And okay. part of the part of the attraction was the world of Sid and Marty Croft, which unfortunately it was a pretty cool place, but it went out of business. They, they went bankrupt six months after they opened. Mm, yeah, all it. of the all of the all of the bankers and investors were out of state. And the, the idea was that this was going to be a year-round thing because it was indoors. It was not weather-dependent. I'm sure. Okay. But when the ki all the kids went back to school, <clears throat> it didn't matter that it was indoor because the attendance dropped and they yeah. went bankrupt. But for me, it was a dream come true job for a guy. I, was, I was, hadn't graduated high school yet, and I was already going to school. Every afternoon, I'd drive down to the world of Marty Croft and do Otis. <clears throat> the weird part of that is, as you will understand, they wanted me and let me use a character that they did not own in their theme park, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, which allowed me to kind of, to whatever extent I was capable at the time, develop this character. Um, yeah. And he got to be known around Atlanta because of the world of Sid and Marty Croft. I love it. That's uh, that, I mean, crazy. Nobody, nobody, nobody would do that now in the theme park. No one would no. Let you use your own characters. <laughs> no, not at all. And if they did, they'd be like, okay, I'm buying that. Thank you. That is now my intellectual property. I exactly. don't know this. Wow. Exactly. Very different times, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Holy cow. Was, am I entirely wrong that by the time, uh, by the time the Muppet Show rolls around, is that the first time that Kermit is cemented as Kermit? Because he'd been rather nebulous before that, right? As a character. Well, I I think broadly to the broad audience, that might be true. Yeah. Jim, Jim had done, Kermit evolved from being just this sort of abstract thing, which is uh -huh. what all the Muppets were. Some of them were kind of more humanoid than others, but Kermit yeah. was not meant to be a frog for quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
but he developed into a frog around the Sesame Street years. Oh, what am I thinking? My brain is, yeah. the timeline yeah. is fried. Yeah, of course, Right, Sesame I know, Street. and it all overlaps so much. Mm -hmm. And then Jim did three specials uh, during mm -hmm. the early 70s, which is after Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. he did a thing called uh, The Frog, uh, Hey Cinderella was the first one. Yes, right, yeah. Which yeah. is all over the place. It's a, this weird, amazing thing to watch. The Frog mm -hmm. Prince, which obviously centered a lot around Kermit. Right. And then a thing called The Muppet Musicians of Bremen. Yes. And Kermit was not in the story, but he narrated uh, a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, so that's sort of Kermit had already become a frog, but I, but it was the worldwide success of the Muppet Show that people I think remembered. You know, dur during the after the first season of that show, it really became the biggest thing on the planet. Yeah, I mean, just worldwide mega success. Which, you know, it was like. Jim had been trying to sell the idea of a primetime show for a very long time mm -hmm. and in the States. A and he was not able to do that because he had been so successful with Sesame Street. Most Makes of the sense. major networks loved his work, but thought it was too much for kids to do something in primetime. Yeah. And the, the story is there's a man named Lou Grade who was a massively well-known, uh, you know, kind of, one of those old-fashioned Hollywood, only he was in uh, the UK, mm -hmm. guys with a cigar. <laughs> he said, you know, come over and shoot this at my studio and uh, and we'll syndicate it back to the States. Yeah. And I think Jim sort of came close to turning it down. Syndication didn't sound like a, the way to go. Yeah. But he did that. And they shot we shot that show. I joined in the third season. But that was a UK thing that was put back here. Yeah. So it was such a massive success. It's crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can't believe, by the way, entirely my brain skips Sesame Street when that is the, you know, the reason I learned how to read as a kid. I mean, come on. How do you forget that? Uh, my goodness gracious. Um, did you ever do any of the Sesame Street stuff? I'm realizing I don't have that in front of me, so I don't know. Yeah. You did. Okay. Well, I w when, when Jim initially hired me, um, mm -hmm. uh, he was looking to sort of establish a, a, a separate team of puppeteers who could do some new characters on Sesame Street because he was suddenly becoming so busy, busy because of the Muppet Show, him and his core team were not as available to do Sesame Street as they had been. Mm -hmm. And he would have to bank all the Ernie and Burt pieces with Frank Oz and you know, yeah, things like uh -huh. that. So the daily shows, the street stuff, he needed new people with new characters. And some of those people are still there today. Mm -hmm. So initially it looked as though I, was, I might be hired to be a part of that team. Mm -hmm. um, which also worked with us on many other things too, but mostly they were they were originally thought of as a new Sesame Street team. Um, but it, as it turned out, for whatever reason, um, Jim decided to bring me straight to London to be a part of the Muppet Show, which was fortunate. I never worked on Sesame Street in those years. And it was fortunate for me because that's where people like Frank and Jerry Nelson and Richard Hunt and, and the main core group were focused mm -hmm. and in a way had i gotten established on sesame street at that point it would have been less opportunity for me to learn directly working with jim and his course his original performers yeah um so jim basically used me for everything except sesame street i, I think it might have been a little bit intentional for whatever whatever it was that he saw in me whatever capacity it was he chose to keep me for all the other stuff he wanted to do, okay. uh, which is fine. I mean, you know, that was great. Yeah. I was working all the time and it was just an incredible time to, to be a part of that. So was... I didn't, I, I, I didn't work on, to answer your original question. I didn't work on Sesame street until after Jim's death. 
Okay, right. Um, so you make sense. At, at which point I, w I was Ernie for about 24 years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, doing one of Jim's characters. So. Do you, uh, what was the first character you got to originate that was a Muppet? Well, um, even though the, the idea for the character did not come from me, the first character that became anything at all to the extent that it did was this character called Fufu, who's Miss Piggy's little poodle. Oh, uh, of course. <clears throat> I think the, the idea of the character came from Frank and the writers, Frank doing Piggy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Piggy, uh, Fufu was basically like an accessory for Miss Piggy. Mm -hmm. uh, it was an extension of Miss Piggy. It was this sort of, you know, uh, obnoxious little dog that was, you know, yappy little dog that Miss Piggy would have, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, the, the concept with this character was that they, had, they actually had an actual little toy um, poodle kind of dog, this little tiny guy uh -huh. um, that was a real dog. And, and the puppet was built to look exactly like the real dog. And I got to work on the design to the extent that I, I came up with this idea that if my hand was inside of the head, I could take my first finger and pinky finger. And if they build it properly, I could put my fingers inside of that dog's ears. And so the dog could then have an alert expression and then have a, a panting expression where the ears were down. The ears could go up, the ears could go down. And it added a little something to that dog, which allowed it to seamlessly sort of, um, you know, go from the actual dog to the other dog. So we would do these things in real scenes where Fufu, the real dog, would walk into a scene and go like behind a set piece and the puppet That's dog right. would come okay. out of the other side. <laughs> so it started this sort of idea for me um, of trying to do characters that were very organic and biological in the way that they worked. Mm -hmm. um, which Jim commented on a few times that, that that was sort of the direction I went in my style of puppeteering was to come up with not just the zany Muppet look, which is fun and, and sure. fantastic, but how do you make something look alive? Yeah. And so that's sort of been a lot of my focus over the years, you know, to, to mix those two and, and decide where you draw the line between the extremes. Sure. My goodness. I, I love that so much. I, it hadn't even occurred to me that... <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be your first. That is remarkable. Oh yeah, my it was a, it was a cool start. <laughs> yeah, of course. Oh, that's so good. Um, where did I mean? Uh, other than the name, I know where the name comes from. But Rizzo's origin. I'm realizing yeah. I don't even know Rizzo's origin, much as I love Rizzo. Yeah, well, Rizzo was probably the first character that I did. That I mean, Fufu had a character, but mm -hmm. Rizzo was the start of doing a character that had a little bit more depth to him. Mm -hmm. um, we were doing a show. I, I don't remember which Muppet show it was. It was around, it was within the early years of my time there. <clears throat> and there was, there was a storage area under, they had bleachers that were audience bleachers, although we didn't actually have a live audience, but the studio we were in could accommodate a live audience. We just never okay. did that. Sure. Um, and under there was all this storage. So all these puppets had been shipped over from New York, everything that there was just in case they needed a puppet. Mm-hmm. And so one of my favorite things to do was when I wasn't working was to go in there and open these cardboard boxes and look at all these puppets that I'd grown up with from all yeah. these specials Jim had done. You know, these original Muppet characters, I could take them out and look Crazy. at them, you know. Crazy. Excuse me. <laughs> I don't have a cough button. And um, uh, so I found this box full of 
it was a box that said rats on the side, you know? And I thought, well, considering where this was stored, there could be some real ones in there. So I opened this thing up and there were these little, pretty poorly made, but remarkable puppets that were rat puppets mm-hmm. that were made out of, I don't know whether you remember the old sort of quart size Clorox bottles, but they were shaped like a bowling pin. Oh, the, the, wow. This is like back in the 60s. Okay. And, and and someone had taken those bottles and made the body out of that. So you can imagine this little round fat body. Holy crap. And it was on a, about a three foot long dowel stick with mm-hmm. a little lever down here. Some of them didn't even have working mouths, but that's how they worked. And so the little head, they were, they were terrible puppets to do anything more than have them just run through a scene with. Yeah, because yeah. Because you, you had no real control over this thing on a long, long stick. But I thought they were great. So I pulled one out of a box. So traditionally, when we would shoot the backstage scenes on The Muppet Show, um, you know, I don't really remember the backstage, but Kermit was mm-hmm. at his desk, and there were just lots of characters populating this area. Yeah. And, and the main scene took place up near the camera where, Jim, where Kermit was at his desk, and Jim mm-hmm. was down there. Jim would say to all of us who were newer, the new puppeteers, just grab any puppet you want and do whatever you want in the background, just upstage and have fun. And that was our learning time on The Muppet Show. He didn't care what we did. We could do anything. And, and the sillier, the better. He encouraged us to draw the attention away from what they were doing downstage. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of a challenge. Mm-hmm. So I got one of these rats one day. Kermit's at his desk. And, and this particular scene, I seem to remember Kermit had a whole bunch of stuff he had to look at the desk and read. And he was talking to Fozzie or some or Piggy or other characters. So on Kermit's other side, this little rat pops up. And, and he just stands there. And he just stands there, he looks at Kermit, and Kermit would say something, Kermit would check his piece of paper, and the little rat would look at the piece of paper. And then Kermit <laughs> would look back, and the rat would read, and then he would look up at Kermit, look at the other guy, and he was like, hmm, looked at camera a couple of times. He was just there. Mm-hmm. He didn't say a word, he just was there. So we shot this thing, and Jim finished the scene, and the moment they said cut, Jim cracked up. <laughs> he just started laughing to the point of where, and Jim would laugh sometimes to the point where he almost had tears. And he turned to me and he said, where did you find that puppet? It's terrible. <laughs> and I said, well, the box of rats from, you know, I think it was from Musicians of Bremen or whatever it was from. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, he said, I'm going to make that rat a star. <laughs> and he said, I want you to, to think about how to rebuild. We got to rebuild it and make it a better puppet. So he set me on this task, you know, to, to, redesign it, rebuild it. And I came up with a way, first of all, to get rid of that long stick because you couldn't, you'd move your hand this much and up here it's moving that yeah, much. Yeah, right, right. I made it, I came up with an idea to get my hand inside of the body. <clears throat> and I wow. worked with one of the top puppet builders ever who's still doing it, a lady named Jane Gutnick, a wonderful person, uh, helped me redesign Rizzo. Wow. And suddenly it was a character. So that was his original origins. He didn't get good until probably Muppet State Manhattan. That was about five years later. But, Which uh, might be the most complicated rat choreography in the history of film. I mean, let's be mm-hmm. honest. Uh, that scene, <laughs> some of yeah. my favorite stuff of all time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, and all yeah. pure puppetry. I mean, some blue and green screen technique for what it's worth at the time. But mm-hmm. mostly it was just pure puppets. You know, that the toast pops out and he gets caught on a plate. We really mm-hmm. did that. Love it. And the, the one in the batter was really like a rubber sleeve with a character in a bowl full of batter and you know, all that stuff was, was you know, um, really practical effects. My goodness. <laughs> that is so remarkable. How about the voice? Uh, Rizzo's voice? Mm-hmm. Well, we all have, I think every puppeteer and, and every voice person has probably two or three voices that 
come naturally to them. Sure, yeah. You know, and then you work on trying to expand that repertoire. But everybody's got maybe a falsetto yeah. or maybe a tight little little pinched voice. You know, everybody's got one. Mm-hmm. And that just happened to be one that was very, that style of voice, that type of voice was one that came naturally to me. Mm-hmm. And um, the big change in Rizzo was, and this is because I would never even pretend to have been an actor of any caliber whatsoever at the point in time when I started. I, my background, mm-hmm. as I said, was in the puppetry. So <clears throat> Rizzo's first appearance as the leader of the rats, I think mm-hmm. it was on the Christopher Reeves show, and they were like a union who had come in to complain. <laughs> and Rizzo was supposed to be the leader. But then I had Jerry Nelson and Richard Hunt, two true actors, two incredibly accomplished voice people, mm-hmm. who also, by the way, happened to be, <laughs> happened to spend, they weren't from there originally, but spent their lives in New York City. So they had a New York accent. I didn't have one. I couldn't do a New York accent. Sure, sure. I'm a guy from Atlanta. What did I know? <laughs> and But yet Rizzo was supposed to be the strongest. And and they were just, their characters, not on purpose, but were just like pushing Rizzo to the back. And Rizzo <laughs> was supposed to be the guy in charge. And I thought, God, this I don't know. I can't compete with those two characters. They're too strong. <laughs> and they were trying to just be supportive. Yeah. Uh, so I can do that that voice. But Rizzo didn't really develop his... New York sort of accent for about five years. It took me about five years to get good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the voice was there, but the character was a different thing. It took a long, long time. You're now making me realize that one of my default voices is probably Wembley, one that okay. I have definitely stolen about a million yeah. times, like a variation cool. on it. Because I mean, I don't know, just one of my favorite voices. Well, you know, uh, Wembley's voice is um, pretty much the same as Rizzo's voice. There's mm-hmm. very little difference except for character differences. The voice is yeah. essentially the same. Rizzo's is deeper and it's got the New York sound to it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and Wembley was a little bit more pure and, and higher and his voice would break a bit more. Um, but, you know, we and we also did a show called The Bunny Picnic and I did this character yeah. called Bean Bunny and Bean's voice is still the same voice with a little bit of a stuffy nose. <laughs> uh, and, and he's a little bit more of a young kid. Yeah. And, I, and when we did that show, I had already done both Rizzo and Wembley. And I, I, I said to Jim, I, 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 I just want to do a different character voice, Jim. I don't want to, and I just keep using the same one over and over again. I really wanted to do something better. And he liked what I was doing with Bean Bunny. Mm-hmm. But we were walk, I remember this very definitely. We were walking across the soundstage together and, and I said, I got to do something different. And he said, well, and at the time, Burt Reynolds was a huge actor, Cannonball Run, all that stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, Burt Reynolds, every time he does a different film, he uses the same voice. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, wow, you're right. Mm-hmm. And he said, I wouldn't worry about the voice. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't care at all that I was doing love the same it. thing over and I over love again. love it. But that has always stuck with me. And I thought, you know what? What that said to me, too, was and I started listening to Jerry Nelson's voices, who was out of this world. Yeah, yeah. And I realized that even though we thought of Jerry as the man of a thousand voices, Jerry's voices, it was very subtle between a lot of them. It sure. was far more about character than it was about a change in the voice. Yeah. You know? I mean, uh, if you had to worry about that, then, you know, you'd have to worry about Kermit and Ernie sounding as much as they sound alike. Exactly. Or every other growly voiced voice that Jim did was yep. kind of the same voice. But, yeah, I mean, there's this, you know, yeah. there's how it actually looks, but there's so much character you can put in the hands. Exactly. I'm wondering, are you ambidextrous because you have to do so much handwork or have you become ambidextrous? 
I am not as much as I'd like to be. Uh, mm -hmm. No, I, I, I went through a phase one time where I had broken a bone in my right hand while we Ooh. were shooting, like working around the house at home. And during Fraggle Rock, I, I snapped a little bone in this part of my hand. So it was, so then we're back into production. I'm in the middle of doing Wembley and it was either, I mean, what was I going to do? I, I wanted to keep going. So I had to learn to do Wembley and Sprocket left-handed. Wow. Uh, okay. And it looked really terrible for about the first day. Okay. And then I found that I was kind of able to adapt to it a little bit. You know, I was not as proficient with my left hand. Mm -hmm. But the same principles apply. But it was like learning. It was like what I can imagine somebody walking in off the street who's never put on a Muppet-like puppet before mm -hmm. having to learn the basics. Of course, yeah. And then I kind of was okay with it, you know. But, but, I, but, I, but I did. it's not like I kept doing that to stay better at it. Yeah. You know, I was always yeah. much stronger with my right hand. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. I cannot imagine the panic that, mu that must have set in for a minute when you realize, oh, shit, I can't use this hand. Right oh, <laughs> and I'm sure for the production, too, because it was right. Like, you know, there's nobody else who could do it you know, at that time. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, there are about a billion things I could ask you about, but I also don't want to keep you for the rest of the day. So not to I, worry, not to worry. I, I do fine. want to at the very least ask you. Well, I think we've already established your favorite track off of this album is Rock Island Line. We have established that, right? I, I think as I've gotten older, Rock Island Line is my favorite off of the Stan Freeberg particular album. Mm -hmm. The one that I remember the most is is probably uh yellow rose of texas mm -hmm. because i actually performed that with puppets so that so those those two i really really sense. like so you probably yeah. got a little bit of sense memory that goes so if i gave you two if you had two puppets right now you could probably do it like if if, if, I, if it were oh, to come to I, it you know what i could probably you, you know how it is you you learn music and and then 40 years later you still remember every word and every little yeah. nuance of the music I wish I could clear that hard disk space out sometimes, <laughs> you know, make room for more stuff that I need to actually remember. Yeah. But it's, it's like anything. Once you really learn it, it's like, for me, it's like the guitar solo in the middle of a Pink Floyd song, you mm -hmm. know, something in the wall. Uh, I know it by heart. You know, I know the guitar solo in the middle of Bohemian Rhapsody. If I had a, a character air guitaring that, I could play it and it would look exactly like they were playing it because I just, it's there. Yeah. And it's the same with the Freeberg stuff. I could probably hit about 95% of the inflections on every word. Yeah. You know, it's it. forever ingrained. That's so good. <laughs> is there any video of you doing that out there? Is that all too old to have survived any of that? There's not. Somewhere I have, a, uh, you know, if I could find it, a piece of silent Super 8 film of that talent show. Oh uh, but it, but it's not the whole show. It's going to be moments. Sure, sure, just, of course. Just moments of us doing Yellow Rose of Texas. Oh, you that's know? so good. I would love to see I that. have it someplace. I recently, recently got a bunch of old Super 8 stuff transferred to, oh, video, good. to, to video, digital video. Uh, and it's, you know, I, that was my thing during my early days. I had more time on my hand. So I, Jim encouraged me to shoot behind the scenes stuff all the time oh my uh, of our work. And I've got stuff, uh, n nobody has ever seen it publicly. Oh my God. Uh, so someday maybe. You know. I hope so. That's got to get turned into something. That's <laughs> yeah. remarkable. I, I got to figure out how, you know, these days, how you go about using it. You know, I don't know. Right. <laughs> I mean, because technically you've got all this stuff that is technically intellectual property, blah, 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 It, it blah. kind of is. But it's so um, important. It's I mean, so there was no, there was no in me shooting it. Uh, it's yeah. just a matter of, and I, you know, it's like any other kind of stuff. You own it once you shoot it. Yeah. So technically I own it. So, you know, I, I'd like to find a respectful way of using it at some point. Sure. The fans would love to see it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> um, 
Uh, I, I'm going to ask you a couple other questions, sure, but sure. I would love to know, were there other comedy albums you grew up with? Um, because, I mean, there are households that I think grew, uh, had just the comedy music, but did you have any yeah. like stand-up or anything else? Um, the only stand-up I ever recall during those years, and this was sort of post the, well, very quickly on the Freeburg, mm-hmm. the original one I had, uh, it would be comedy on lacquer, I think, because there was, it was a 78. Okay, my you mom had, had those. these okay. 78s, you know. And uh, I broke many, accidentally broke many of those platters of my mom's. She was not amused. Um, <laughs> th- there, and there was another one from those days that was a 78 RPM album or, or recording called It's in the Book, uh-huh. which is the, by this guy named Johnny Stanley. Okay. It's out there. I found it on the internet in prep of talking to you. Okay. And it went straight into a song called Grandma's Lyso. It's, the, it's meant to be this kind of, I think he's meant to be like a Southern preacher. Okay. And he's, and he's taking apart the fairy tale of Little Bo Peep. It's, it's, again, it's, it's, it's Freeburg-like before Freeburg. Yeah. Uh, this is one everybody should hear. It's out there. Somebody's got it on YouTube. Yeah, I do see um, that. Okay, I'm going to have to listen to this it, later. Yeah, and then the original Freeburg one that I heard was Yellow Rose of Texas, also this scratchy mm-hmm. album. And then fortunately, by the time I got to high school and was trying to put these things together for high school things, uh, I had a friend whose father had quite an extensive vinyl collection mm-hmm. one of the things he had was this album of child's garden of freeburg which mm-hmm. is the one that we're referring to it's all these different things and i think he gave me the album uh because he knew what a fanatic i was yeah um although i say that i might have recorded it off because i i don't recall having it now but anyway um and i used all of these for various puppet characters you know yeah um, yeah and that was and, and but you ask about stand-up <clears throat> during that time frame too the Flip Wilson show happened. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and he did such strong characters. Um, it, you know, there was so much of that culture of that sort of late 60s, early 70s time frame was such a part of forming where I was headed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as again, again, you only had really three network channels. And, you know, it was it was real appointment television. You saw it or you didn't see it. You couldn't go back and watch it tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and... So we had a couple of my parents, because we loved Flip Wilson, got a couple of his stand-up albums. But what I, the funniest thing I recall about it, and I'll never forget this, is my mom and I put on the Flip Wilson album of one of his live shows. And <laughs> in his live shows, he used a lot of four-letter words that he couldn't use yes, on television. He did. And, you know, we were this southern kind of family, you know, and all of a sudden, <laughs> Flip, the innocent Flip Wilson stuff was filled with all this stuff. And I remember my mom looking at me like, because I was a little kid. Uh, by her standards, and it, and um, she let us continue to listen to it, but there was a lot of trepidation about, oh my God, this is who Flip Wilson is. So you know, we knew the difference, so it didn't matter. But I love it. But it was it was it was stuff that normally might not have come into our our fairly you know Southern conservative uh, household. You know, Holy but God. I loved Flip Wilson. We loved him, and we yeah. didn't. You know, it didn't affect our tuning in because we loved him. Yeah, you know? and I Jim, love that. of course, Jim was on that show with the Muppets. Oh, Christmas. Uh, so yeah, I got huh. to see I got to see Jim perform. You know, I was, it was amazing. Oh, that's remarkable. Um, <laughs> my goodness. Uh, well, I always like to ask people why. Pardon me. <clears throat> why yeah. you would recommend this album to listen? Because I'm we're talking to an audience. Some of some are people probably between you know roughly in ages that you and I fall into. Sure, uh, a bunch of sure. white guys. There might be some younger <laughs> people listening who yeah. maybe don't even know who Freeburg is. So why listen to this yeah. album as your first delving into Freeburg? 
You know, I, I think it's a, he did a lot of other types of work. He did a lot of political humor mm -hmm. uh, uh, that I didn't, it didn't uh, draw me at the time because it wasn't what I was into as a teenager. Um, and I think, I think it's possible for anyone interested in any sort of performing arts to appreciate the interplay between these characters. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think even today, even though the music is from a, from a bygone age, um, you can understand why it would have been so popular because it was the top music at the time he did it sure. in the 50s. Uh, and he was making fun of it in a way that nobody else was doing. Uh, and nobody's doing it today like this. Right. Um, there's, nothing, there's nothing better to me than parodying anything. I, I'm, a, I'm a ridiculously corny pun person. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's a, part, a big part of the Muppets. And I just love the idea of taking popular things and, and doing a slant on them. And so that's what he was doing at the time. Um, it may not be as funny to people now because the music is not as popular, but if you listen to the original and you listen to what he was doing, you can at least understand the sophistication of what he was doing. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say listen to it just for that reason alone. Yeah, you know, there, there are lots of times on this podcast when we bring up what I would like to call homework comedy, where you really have to yeah. know some references if you're not old enough. Like, But I had to right. do that as a kid, too. I also had to just, like, assume, like, I, it's a good thing I, I weirdly was a fan of old commercials or I wouldn't have gotten a lot of references on some stand-up records or sketch yeah. records, you know? Yeah. Um, my hmm. goodness. Um, I, uh, first of all, thank you for doing the show. That's number well, you're, one. You're, you're very welcome. Yeah, of course. And second of all, thank you for the just thousands of hours of entertainment you've given me. And, you know, even though I never became a professional puppeteer, you were definitely part of me wanting to be and loving it as much as I did for as long. I still do. I mean, I have a, I've got a whatnot up here. I use it every once yeah. in a while. So come on. <laughs> I love it. And it, you've just been a huge part of, of, of me loving comedy and entertainment and everything. So thank you very much for that. It's a, it's, well, it's a huge honor to talk to you. Well, thank you so much, Jason. And, and, and it's nice to talk about reminisce about some of this other stuff. And, you know, I'm still trying to use that stuff today with the stuff I'm doing. Sure. Um, you know, I'm still trying to, I would say Freeberg is even affecting, I'm doing this little thing called Cave In and I'm, and I'm, we'd always do musical numbers mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm coming up with all the music and it's a lot of parodies. I, I mean, actually it's, it's an extension of Freeberg as much as it would be an extension of my work with Jim. Yeah. Um, all that stuff. You Tell know? people where to find that and where to find you. Okay, sure. Um, well, I'm out there on Instagram mostly. I have a Facebook page, which I, I, I frequent, but mostly the best way to find me right now is Instagram. Mm -hmm. uh, as we record this at the, uh, in August here, I'm just on the verge of starting a new website, which is gonna have a lot of fun stuff, including a new blog um, oh, nice. where people can submit questions and ideas to me and um, I'll write blog posts in answer to those ideas. Um, I like working that way. That way I'm not writing a bunch of boring stuff people don't care about. I'm responding to their questions yeah. uh, about Muppets and, and other things too. Uh, I'm also doing this monthly live stream called Cave-In mm -hmm. with a new character called Weldon the IT Guy. Uh, in, in about a week and a half, we'll do our one year anniversary show. Wow. Uh, so we've been doing it every month for a year. And we've settled into a time frame that is it's generally the last Friday of every month uh, 10 p.m. EST. So wherever you are in the world, you can find us mm -hmm. uh, on YouTube. Uh, the YouTube channel is Caven with a hyphen in the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you can't find it, there are a couple other things that take you. It takes you to on Caven, like actual Cavens. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, um, 
you can just search Weldon the IT guy and it'll pop right up. There we go. Um, also, there's a link on my, my Instagram page to get there and there'll be links on the website, so forth and so on. But Weldon's a fun character. Um, it, it really harkens back to what we were talking about earlier about this character called Otis. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I have always wanted to find a way to go back to doing over the years was, and by the way, it's the thing I love the most with Kermit, mm-hmm. were the live spontaneous improvised it's that stuff where there's no script yeah and it's almost completely that with weldon just like it was with otis and just like it often was with kermit yeah and i'm responding to i'm taking phone calls again only this time we do it on the internet on a discord server uh and it's the viewers calling in and talking to weldon and uh, we talk about whatever weldon is an internet troll and so his his motive is to to hack into websites and be an obnoxious guy (laughs) to the extent that I can do that without alienating anybody. I don't want to do that. Of course. So it's a sort of a, sort of a, a, a light version of that, but he's more edgy than any of the Muppets have been in that regard. Mm-hmm. And, and what he wants to know is when you call in, he wants to know the most miserable thing that's happened to you in your life since last month's show. <laughs> um, and so you talk, you know, the show focuses on your misery mm-hmm. uh, from Weldon's point of view. So he's broadcasting live from an underground cave and he's, you know, trying, he doesn't want to get discovered. He's hacking into YouTube you know all that kind of stuff so I'm, I'm having a great time with him for now i love it that's that's, yeah, that's yeah. a lot of fun uh well everybody should obviously make sure to check that out follow you everywhere they can follow you um and uh boy oh boy i don't, I don't know what else to say except again thank you this has been so much fun you're welcome back anytime that's the other thing i should say if you'd like well, to come back and talk about another comedy record i would love to because i know you had a lot well yeah sure i'd love to we'll find a time you know when it makes makes sense sure yeah, of course absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Thank you so much. Um, Thank everybody for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15 plus years. Dress Entertainment. Hey, it's my turn. Ah! <laughs>